This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me once again this week is Tyler Johnson. Tyler, how has your week been going? Oh, everything's great here. It's uh, uh, sunny in Portland, and that's not a thing in the wintertime. <laughs> so this is great. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It's usually like Rigel 10 around there. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you could join me again this week to talk about a little bit different thing than we normally talk about on the show, because we often talk about characters or we talk about storylines. But this time we're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of Enterprise, and we're going to talk about technology. And specifically, as it applies to Enterprise as a prequel series, this is prequel technology. You know, when we think of Star Trek, if, if you ask someone about Star Trek and what they know about the show and what they know about the technology, the things they'll picture in their heads are, of course, phaser beams firing out of ships or red glowing photon torpedoes, people transporting up and down from planets, ship to ship. And the, it's very different than what we're accustomed to in our everyday world. But Enterprise, in bridging that gap, you know, they brought us some technology that's both similar to what we have today. You can certainly see the progression and also the seeds of new technology that was somewhat frightening to our crew members. Yeah, I think they, you know, they had a pretty unique challenge in that they had to fit in with the Star Trek canon and appease fans, you, you know, but some of the things that happened later in Trek didn't don't really match up with our current technology. So finding that balance was obviously a problem for, for them. I like right. the way they solved it for the most part. So be interested to talk about the pieces with you and hear what you think. Well, before we jump into it, let's place Enterprise on the timeline, because I know that we do have some listeners, as there are many, many Enterprise fans, who found Enterprise when it came around, and 
aren't necessarily familiar with the depth of the Star Trek canon and all the series and everything that came before. So to put the technology into context, I think it's a good idea to put Star Trek Enterprise itself on the timeline. Yeah, so um, First Contact, we'll just stick to what was on screens at this point as opposed to books. So First Contact was uh, is supposed to happen in 2063, so everybody mark your calendars. We've got under 50 years now <laughs> before we're getting close. If I'm lucky, I might still be here for that. Exactly. I'm going I'm, I'm <laughs> to hold on those last couple of years if I have to. Um, and, then, and then Enterprise, the actual ship, was in service from 2151 to 2161. So that's 88 years after first contact, after the first time we've... And that's... That's the NX01 Enterprise. NX01, I'm sorry, the yes. star of NX01 the Enterprise, show. and then, um, yeah. and then that's 104 years before TOS. So it's it's almost 100 years on either side before we've seen technology or after we've seen technology on track. Okay, yeah, and it's an interesting progression. Like when I looked at the technology in the original Star Trek, and of course the Next Generation, and you think like, can we possibly get there? from here some of it you think yeah sure we can do that especially today i mean phasers you know the u.s military is already looking at deploying a a type of laser technology anyway on the battlefield and that will eventually lead to phasers because phasers are i mean there are technical differences but if you want to like really simplify it their progression of laser beam technology and i can see us getting to that uh Photon torpedoes, mm-hmm. mixing matter and antimatter. I mean, maybe. Uh, I, I think we're more likely to develop photon torpedoes than we are warp engines because of the amount of antimatter that would be required. But then there are other things like transporters, and you're thinking, well, I don't know. How are we ever going to get there? But so with Enterprise, by placing it, like you said, kind of halfway in between where we are now and what we saw in the original series, or at least almost where we are with when the Vulcans come in first contact, they had a real challenge to do this. And the heart of what they did, though, in the premise of the show is the Warp 5 engine, which doesn't seem like any great thing if you're entering the Star Trek universe through the series Enterprise as your gateway. But if you're accustomed to the 24th century and going warp 9.99, and if you're lucky, you know, if you're Tom Paris and you're lucky and you can go warp 10, you can have <laughs> lizard babies with your captain. That's pretty fast too. But warp five, this was like a major breakthrough in 2151. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's the name of the show, so it might be good to address that in addition. But it's, I, you know, I always thought that was interesting because warp doesn't work the way that, you know, warp two isn't twice as fast as warp one and warp three isn't three times as fast as warp one. It's it's more like earthquakes right? where it's, you know, they, it's exponentially faster. So I think a lot of people don't realize what that really means. I mean, it is sort of sciencey gobbledygook, and you have to really correlate different episodes to figure out, <laughs> you know, how fast warp really is. But but there's people who've gone out and done that, and it's on Memory Alpha, and you can go look it up. And um, warp five, I mean, they've been flying warp two ships, you know, up to the beginning yeah. of Enterprise, and so warp five is like 15 times faster. It's it's a huge change. Yeah, warp five is roughly 200 times the speed of light, which is astonishing. And, you know, actually, I was reading today, there there was an article 
about a new supernova that has just been observed. And these these students, they were doing uh, like a training on the telescopes or something with their professor. And they, they said they were actually eating pizza. And 10 minutes later, they were discovering a new supernova. And they, they looked at this galaxy and they said it just didn't look right when they looked at it again. And what it is, is it's a supernova. The light mm-hmm. is just now reaching us. But the supernova, the, that star exploded 13 million years ago. And the light is just now reaching us now. And they say maybe it's going to get brighter for the next few weeks and then it'll fade out. But all, you know, that's all based on the speed of light, right? That's how that's reaching us. And so if you think about that in another galaxy taking 13 million years to reach us, and then here you've got a ship traveling 200 times speed of light, it's it's just um, not that there's any direct correlation between the two stories, but it, when it starts making you think about how fast light travels, and if you're traveling 200 times the speed of light, think about the, the distances that you're covering and the horizons that this engine, this new Warp 5 engine, opened up to humans to actually go out. And even though humans had been out in space and there are cargo ships, which of course we know Travis Mayweather uh, was a boomer and, and grew up on one, that's different than being able to actually really go out into the galaxy and start exploring like this. Yeah, it's kind of, it makes me think of uh, Pioneers, which is probably correct. You know, if you used to take a, a covered wagon across the, the country, and let's just say the United States, and that was your year, right? <laughs> you spent that whole year doing it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a car and you could do it in a couple of days, you know, and, and then at some point you could fly. And that is such a huge progression. This is like that. This is like going from a covered wagon to being able to take an airplane. And um, you just think of, you know, if you could get to one star in a reasonable amount of time, now you can get to 15 times as many of those. And I, I think... Yeah. It, it's it it took me a while to really understand because warp five doesn't sound that exciting after you know some of the other shows they talk right. about going warp 14 um which didn't <laughs> in the alternate yeah, future exactly. yeah let's, let's make up numbers <laughs> so uh warp five just seemed like nothing uh and, and until you really start looking right. into what it what it means but you have when they go up to the engine in broken bow and they at uh, travis asks trip you know how fast have you gotten her and he says what what do you say? I forget the exact line, but it's like warp four point something. And then he says, when we get past Saturn, we're going to take it up mm-hmm. to warp. And and Travis gets that big smile on his face, and he's like, "Holy damn!" <laughs> you know, it's that's I can't believe that. I grew up on spaceships, so so like you say, you know, it's like going from a covered wagon to an airplane, but for a spacefaring civilization already. So that kind of transition for for a civilization that's already accustomed to working in space on a daily basis. That's, it's astonishing. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And then, you know, they, they cover that in some of the episodes. What's the, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the episode where they go to the human colony that took them nine years to get to, and, and they can get there in a couple of days now. Oh, when they go to Terra Nova. Terra Nova, that's what it was. Yeah. And so yeah. they, you know, they, they, uh, they, they can now just go check it out and see what happened. And it's not an 18 year round trip to, to, to see that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a few interesting points about the engine, Again, because in later Star Trek, we're accustomed to them being able to travel at these high warp speeds for usually however long they need to. Now, sometimes based on a plot, you know, to kick up the drama, there will be some problem where they can only sustain it for a certain amount of time. But the Warp 5 engine, the original one, could only sustain Warp 5 for 53 minutes. And then they refined that. And by a year later, once the NX-01 had been out in space for a year, 
they could maintain it for longer periods of time. And I don't know of a specific time being stated, but it's longer than the 53 minutes, of course. They could pretty much cruise around at near that speed if they needed to. And th- that, of course, changed the show a lot, right? Because they can go more places in less time and, and really scoot around. The other thing that's interesting to me with Warp 5 as a number is that in the next generation, in Force of Nature, when they have to slow down because they're you know damaging the environment with the warp engines, the new speed limit was Warp 5. <laughs> so they had to take a step backwards. And they're like, Warp 5, man, we can't go anywhere. Warp 5, man, this <laughs> <Right>. sucks. <laughs> yeah. God, what are we going to do? <laughs> Well, yeah, and some people might not even realize that the reason why the this Enterprise is called the NX-01 is that's it's an experimental ship. You know that they used to call um, jet fighters that yeah. uh, when it, you know this isn't the production version, this is the experimental version. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and one of the things I like about the show, you know, is there's character progression and the ship's part of that. You know, the, the ship gets better, and like you said, all of a sudden they can now sustain warp five for and they they never really say exactly how long but uh, let's say a day you know especially in this show right the ship really evolved there is like real character Mm -hmm. growth for the ship that you don't get in all the other series you know the the enterprise in the original series doesn't really change Mm -hmm. Uh, the enterprise d doesn't really change it doesn't get that much better maybe they you know there are a few upgrades you got the binars on there they're going to make the computers run faster or something mm-hmm. uh yeah. the, the one ship i can think of would be voyager when it gets all of its borg technology uh combined with it you know that those were real upgrades to a ship so so yeah character growth for a ship on Enterprise. <laughs> yeah usually the writers uh just seem to prefer to blow the ship up and start over you know, oh, we'll have a movie and we'll, we'll run it into a planet or something. We get a whole new ship. <laughs> Although the way they did it with the original Enterprise in the search for Spock, now that was a great moment. That was yeah. not like, let's blow the ship up so we can make a new one. That was like Kurt ripping his own heart out. Right. Having to make that decision. That was a, a great moment in that movie. And I'm being a little facetious there. I mean, it is a cool thing to see in movies. And when it's done oh, well, sure. it's really interesting. But, you know, uh, I guess what I'm saying is they didn't tend to iterate. They tended to just, you know, okay, scrap well, it. <laughs> We're going to have a whole Well, new I ship agree now. with you with yeah. the D. You know, I right. agree with you that with the D, they just wanted to make a new ship. So let's, right. let's blow it up. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that in Into Darkness that the JJ Enterprise was going to be destroyed as well because I don't like the design of that ship very much. And I was hoping they were going to make a new one for the third movie, but no, it's all right in the end. But it can go underwater. Underwater. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've seen this, and this is off topic for Warp 5, I know, but because you brought that up, there was a a Japanese commercial for a spray lubricant like Mm WD-40 in the U.S., kind of a silicon lubricant. And it was tied into Into Darkness and they had to spray the captain's chair because it was squeaky after it had been mm-hmm. under the ocean on Nibiru. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, well, let's move on to another technology and this is the transporters. Now, how are they going to handle transporters in a prequel series, especially a series that's set so close to our own time? And as I was saying at the opening, that's a technology that really feels far-fetched, like something mm-hmm. that... Like I'm starting to feel like maybe we're going to be able to transport 
inanimate objects because there there is some research that's being done now and there are some test results that indicate that it may be possible to by transferring the information mm-hmm. from atoms in one location to their pairs in another location but transporting people that's something totally different i, I mean what did you think about the way they handled transporters on enterprise i actually thought it was great i think that um it's it's funny some of this stuff some of these technologies in Trek were be, became canon because it was convenient or because it was expensive or because it was hard to write a story. So, you know, the, the original Enterprise on TOS was supposed to land on planets. And they said, ah, right. it's too hard. We'll just invent this transporter thing. And that'll solve all of that, right? It's too bad they didn't. We could have heard, right. we, we, we could have heard Spock yell, blue alert! <laughs> right. <You know. laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it was, it was something that was invented to fill a need yeah. and, um, you know, nothing against it. I think transporters are awesome and I never didn't realize that till years later, but I like the fact that in this, that they don't trust it yet and people aren't used to it yet. And I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we're going to end up talking about some of these other technologies. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but th- they did this to make st- storytelling easier. But yeah. you can have this limitation and actually make storytelling better. It can be part of the, st- the storytelling instead of like, okay, we just need to transport because then we can get straight to the planet and, and you know, then we can get into the story. The fact that you're building a transporter and that people are scared to use it and, and, and all of that, that, that can be part of the story and that can be a cool part of the story, I think. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they came up with the transporters because of the budgetary restraints of the original series is sort of a a creative it's one of those lucky chances in creativity that happens all the time you know I, i'm a designer and i when i'm designing sometimes things happen and and they're they're they work out so well the solution works out so well but you didn't really plan it ahead of time you just kind of mm-hmm. it happened during the process and so so that's a great thing i cannot imagine star trek without transporters but like you say it works well in the, the prequel here in the 22nd century, the fact that they do need to take shuttles around and the fact, and, and I'm glad that they continued to take shuttles in this series, even though they had transporters, because one thing that, that I felt was a problem uh, from the storytelling aspect of enterprise, although I, I know they, they were, their hand was kind of forced, like, well, we just have to advance this stuff ahead because it's Star Trek. I don't think they should have used the transporters as quickly as they did. That all happened way too fast. Mm-hmm. But even though they did start using them, they still preferred to use shuttle pods. There were still uh, concerns. Uh, a great episode that I think often gets overlooked is Vanishing Point, where Hoshi is so scared to use the transporter that she has this whole scenario that goes on in her head during mm-hmm. a couple of seconds that she's in the beam. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing continues to to be a concern for people. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at, at today's world, new technologies come in and there's a certain group of people who just reject them or people take a while to come around, you know, they'll, they'll pitch a fit when it when it first comes out. And then four years later, five years later, 10 years later, they, they've adopted mm-hmm. it. And this is an extreme one. This is one that, depending on how you define it, could completely destroy your entire being and make a copy of you someplace else. That's one way to define what a transporter is. And so I'm sure there would be some real, you know, there's hand wringing about 
you know, should kids have cell phones and is the internet safe? So a, a freaking transporter, <laughs> philosophers would be going crazy at that point. Yeah, I, it's a good point. I mean, that that's, that is a debate. How does the transporter work? And some people will tell you, and I'm talking about some scientists will tell you, it kills you and it resurrects you using other matter in that location by encoding it with the information that describes you. And so if you think about it in that way, Captain Picard, Riker, Captain Kirk, all these characters in the later series who use transporters many, many times a day, these people have been killed hundreds or thousands of times and just recreated. And then that that raises a metaphysical question as well. And then you get into what like what actually makes us who we are. And and so that's for another show. Actually, that'd be an interesting show. We should do that. Yeah, that, yeah I was going to say that's almost a whole other episode. But I do it is of, another episode. Know, the, the Xeroxing thing, like I Xerox cap, you know, somebody, and then I Xerox their Xerox, and I've done it a thousand times now. <laughs> like, what if right. there's just one little change each time? So, luckily, uh, it's yeah. not like the movie Multiplicity, where the seventh copy of Michael Keaton just wants pizza. Yeah, it, it only <laughs> happened in in, a, in one show, and it's in a series we can't talk about. It's not it's not this podcast. So, <laughs> all right. But let me ask you now: if 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 I brought you into a room and I said, Tyler, I know that you want to go to the sports ball competition in New York today, but you're in Portland. But this device right here, if you step on that pad, you can be there in time for kickoff. Would you climb in? Would you try it? Would you allow yourself to be transported? I would be so freaking scared. And if I hadn't seen it used every day, you know, for for a while, I'd be so freaking scared. I, I I think I'd I think I would, you know, I'd let some other I'd let some test pilots try it out first. <laughs> I'd see how it worked for a few years. Yeah, I I don't know. I would be scared too. Yeah, I don't even like to fly, so I don't know about having my my atoms beamed through the universe, but who knows? One thing on this, this is interesting. You sent me this link today to this new article on Blaster with John Billingsley, interview with John Billingsley, and he's promoting this new show that he's on called Intelligence. But uh, towards the end of the article, they talked to him about Enterprise, and he finally got into some stuff I haven't really heard him say before. He was talking about his thoughts on technology itself, and the great line in there is he said they didn't think that they went too far. And we all know how the network kind of forced them to bring stuff, kind of rain ideas in a bit. Mm-hmm. But he said that in the first script, uh, one of the original concepts where they, they beam the crewmen up mm-hmm. and he lands, it's they, it's emergency beam out using the transporter kind of for the first time to get someone out of a tough situation. And he said that like the first when the guy beams up and like his his head is attached to his ass or something like that. And the sensor's <laughs> like, we we can't do that. We can't do that. And so in the final version, he has like a, a branch sticking out of his nose. He's got some leaves on him and that's it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I think that's a, that's a good thing to bring up for the transporter and really for everything. Because he mentioned the idea that they wanted to go further in terms of... Uh, you know, start starting not from zero with technology, but not not a fully functional ship that does all of this stuff and yeah. and make it a bit more of a struggle to get there, which I think is really interesting. And you can see why the network pushed back on it. But uh, because, you know, they want to feel like a star, a Star Trek show. 
Um, and, and as you guys have talked about on the on on this podcast many times is that, uh, you know, they even, they want to do the first season and not even get up to warp five yet. So, um, well, they wanted to stay I, I on earth and, and be building the ship on earth for the first season. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. the, the, you're not, you're nowhere near getting ready to take off. Um, and I think, I think that'd be an interesting way to go. I mean, we have the show that we have, so I guess we can only conjecture about what might have happened. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that the, NX01 had a transporter room, I think that makes perfect sense because if they're able to develop this technology, certainly you would use it to transport cargo. I mean, mm-hmm. I I would expect that, as I was saying a minute ago, you know, I think that we may eventually be able to develop some sort of teleportation technology that allows us to move inanimate matter because we can break that down to a set of rules that defines what this is on a on right. a molecular level and we don't have to worry about the you know do we have a soul or those kind of other aspects of what makes people what we are so the fact that they had this transporter room makes sense but i do think that they should have restrained themselves from making it approved for biological matter right. and for people mm-hmm. until later in the series or maybe never had it approved at all in the series but they're willing to use it in like a life or death situation from time to time. Right. That that could have been more dramatic. Yeah, that kind of thing. If if you don't use it now, he's dead anyway. <laughs> That's right. You have to yeah. beam him up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think um, you, you know, uh, and the other thing, if we're since we're talking about this as prequel and and what what comes of this later, um, one of the things that seemed really natural, and I like that that TNG did that was that if you have the pattern for a steak or a box of wood or whatever mm-hmm. it is, um, why not be able to recreate it? And so the, the idea of a replicator and a, you know, to a lesser extent, the, the holodeck, um, really is a natural extension of that. I mean, making right. another, another Chris is a different thing, but you know, making, making any of that inanimate stuff seems like it, it just totally makes sense. If you have that ability to turn yeah. electrons into matter. And, and we're headed towards that, um, all the 3D printing that's going on today. That, that's an interesting twist to me, actually. Not to spend too much time here on transporters, but the 3D printers that have come around in recent years is, I feel like, a technological twist that the writers at the time they were writing Star Trek, even writing Enterprise just you know a little over a decade ago, couldn't anticipate. I didn't mm-hmm. see it coming. You know, I thought that what I saw in Star Trek, and it's probably just because I grew up watching it on Star Trek, I thought that's probably the most likely path of technology to create objects out of of nothing, basically. I mean, you're it's not out of nothing, but you out of a pattern of sorts. And 3D printing is is incredible. I mean, there's a, there is a guy now who found a way to print limbs mm-hmm. in in Africa. Well, they're doing it in the UK too, but they're doing it in Africa and, and printing. Th- this is an arm, 600 pounds, I believe is the cost of it, or maybe it's $600. Art of an arm, actually mm-hmm. replacement arm, Liam, 3D printed. That's right. that's incredible. I mean, Flox isn't doing anything like that in his sick bay. He's growing stuff in a broth, basically, right. or something like that. And And there's another company that's looking into when we build a base on the moon, 3D printing the moon base wow. instead of transporting <laughs> the material up there to build it. Right. It's just incredible. So, 
It's funny though, too. I mean, it's actually something that's been around for a long time. It's just now getting into people's hands. If you went into the right room at a college or an engineering firm, they had a four million dollar <laughs> piece of equipment that could three three D print something. But right, right, most people didn't have access to it, and and nobody was thinking about it as something that would eventually be everywhere and be small right. and the, to, to use. And the general public didn't really know about it either. Right, that's the thing. So. All right. Well, well, let's move on to another technology because we have quite a few that we want to touch on today. Uh, the mm-hmm. next one relates to transporters, and this is the very controversial decontamination chamber. And this relates to transporters because, as we know, on the next generation, if they beam someone up and they have a pathogen in their system from the planet, well, the transporter filters can just screen that out. So when they rematerialize, the pathogen's gone. Unless you need the crew member to get sick for a plot device. But technologically, they're supposed to be able to get rid of it. But of course, they can't do that here. So we have the decontamination chamber. Yeah. So why do you say that it's controversial? Because it didn't seem controversial to me at all. I mean, I'm sure somebody out there doesn't like it. But it's controversial because of the fact that there are a number of people and there, I think, especially were at the time that the show aired in 2002. I think now maybe we're more able to accept this as part of the show. On Star Trek, though, it was just, it felt like something that was put on the ship. Again, remember, everyone is coming off a Voyager. Everyone is accustomed Mm -hmm. to transporters can filter out germs. You don't need to rub each other down with creams and lotions and gels and, you know, spend four Mm -hmm. hours in in your skivvies together. And so there was the feeling that this was just put on the show purely as a stunt to sexualize the show and gain ratings and maybe attract a younger audience. And it was like a gimmick. Yeah, see, that's okay. why I say it was controversial. I, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I guess I have heard that. I, I you know, yeah. if the controversy was this shouldn't have been on a show on a ship like this, that seems completely wrong because. As we know, you know, uh, they say one of the biggest changes that's ever happened on our planet is when Europeans started trading with the Americas and diseases and animals and plants went back and forth and nobody could handle it. Right? It completely changed ecosystems. So I think mm-hmm. it's pretty natural that if you go to another planet, there's going to be stuff you're just not prepared to deal with. And, and, oh, yeah. and even, even the fact that in, on TNG they had that filter in the transporters – I feel like that was correcting the fact that TOS never really thought about that. Like, you're going to die. If you go to space, It's it's the phaser might kill you, but more likely it's going to be some little worm or some little germ on a planet that's going to get into your system, and that's going to be the end of you. But on TOS, you didn't have to worry about it because you had Dr. McCoy. And Dr. McCoy can cure anything without using instruments. <laughs> you know, just pour some liquids together, swish it around, eyeball it. I'm pretty sure this is going to work. Drink it. And and you're better. He so. would just he would just cranky it to death. He would just sort of <laughs> he's the real miracle worker. Grumble and those things would die. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think, but I think this highlights part of the problem for Enterprise as a prequel series and why it was not as successful as maybe it should have been. Why a lot of Star Trek fans quickly left the show and said this isn't working for me as Star mm-hmm. Trek. I'm not going to watch this. What you say makes perfect sense, right? That, of course, you need 
a decontamination room on the ship and you need to make sure that you quarantine like anybody coming back from a planet should be quarantined. Absolutely. But I, I think because we were so accustomed to not doing that in Star Trek that here, even though we're going back 200 years, it's sort of, you have to get your mind around the fact that you've gone back 200 years and that the technology isn't the same technology that you're used to and that the transporters barely work and they don't have these filters. And so I think if, if you could take the people at the time who felt like it was a gimmick to sexualize the show, if you could take the take them at the time and say, okay, stop for a minute and listen to this ra- rationalization and then tell me what you think about it, they would probably say, oh, okay, yeah, that is a good idea to have that. Although they would probably say that you don't necessarily have to have Trip and Paul and Hoshi together rubbing right. lotion on each right. other in yeah, their a, underwear. That, that, so yeah. I'm, I'm trying to separate the de- the decision that a particular <laughs> director made or <laughs> a network executive may have pushed for from the technology, which totally makes sense to me. Well, you know, they say on the, it's in the commentary for Broken Bow on the season one Blu-rays, and it's a new commentary that was just recorded for the Blu-rays. And they say when they shot it, that they shot it, they said, if if we're going to do this, mm-hmm. we're going to do it. Let's go all out. And they shot it mm-hmm. to be as racy as they could, because they said, you know, we can pull it back in editing. Let's go ahead and shoot it that way. So, yeah, I mean, they got the footage to do, <laughs> yeah, where's, do what where's they wanted that to do. Where's that B-roll? Yeah, I, so. you know, I, I do think, to me, that the, it, I found that interesting, although I think on a real ship, you know, if if you were to go someplace and there's, you know, let's say there's male-female changing rooms because it's uh, a, a very business-like environment in the military or something like that, I think most people don't care. I mean, they're so worried about what they need to do. And in that case, they might even be saying, man, I could have this spore. Yeah. I could die. Um, that they might not be sexualizing in that way. So, I mean, I definitely agree with that, that it was maybe overdone. But right. but I, I actually just love the idea of that chamber. I love the idea that you've, you've got to counteract one thing with a lotion or a cream or a, you know, a, you're getting bombarded yeah. with something. I, I think it's really smart. And I think if you had reversed the order and that this show had happened in 19, well, I don't know, whatever, before TOS, right, and had come out and all these technologies were there and then TOS mm-hmm. came out and improved on all of those, I don't think anyone would complain. If you had that decontamination scene in 1966, <laughs> I think people would have been pretty upset. I think people would, they, they, it would have been racy. They would have been pointing ray guns at each other in miniskirts, right? Like that would have been like the shocking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean, to be honest, the other thing is uh, whether you like it or not, there's sort of always been that sexuality and objectification a little bit in, in, in track. You know, TOS had the miniskirts. We've had a bunch of, you know, women running around in unitards in various shows, mm-hmm. especially as it went on. So, you know, it, it to pick out Enterprise as the problem child, I think is kind of playing unfair. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to another one here. And these are phase cannons. Now, <laughs> we're accustomed to phasers, you know, light beams shooting out at enemy ships in Star Trek. And the, the NX-01 got phase cannons. And prior to that... There was something that we didn't get to see, but just in terms of the technological development, plasma cannons. And then later on, you get phasers. 
So this sits in the middle between plasma cannon development and phasers. The NX-01 was designed to carry three phase cannons, but since they had to launch prematurely, they weren't ready, they weren't installed, kind of like the deflector dish on the Enterprise-B. I guess the uh, the, the three phase cannons were going to be installed on Tuesday, but instead they rushed and they were able to get two prototypes installed, and uh, the ship launched with those. And they also, why don't, why don't we group those together with spatial torpedoes? Mm-hmm. Now, these were like literally missiles with engines on them that putter away from the ship <laughs> into space. Uh, it's really hard to target them. You couldn't control the strength of the explosion. And they didn't work against deflector shields. Right. So the, the NX-01, I mean, boy, talk about bringing... What do they say? Bringing a stick to a knife fight? Right. That's pretty much what humans are doing. Or a knife now. to a gunfight. <laughs> a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. You can tell I've been um, out of an English-speaking country for way too long. <laughs> um, yeah, your euphemisms are all mixed up. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's just it's my my example was it was a prequel example. Right. It was before <laughs> guns were around. We only had sticks. Then they invented right. knives. That's right. so I, I'm earlier on the timeline. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's funny too. The spatial torpedoes. If you if you think about how complicated it is to send something with a, I don't know if it, a chemical rocket or whatever was powering those specifically, but your ship is moving, the other ship is moving. You know, there's gravitational forces. Of course, that's going to be really hard to hit. And I think anything would be really. I mean, it's it's a miracle anybody hits anybody out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess they have some, I would hope that they have some sort of of internal guidance system, you know, where they can see, you know, like a heat-seeking missile mm-hmm. or something like that. Because if they don't, I'm, where did that technology go? Because we have that now. Right. But, you know, Malcolm can barely hit an asteroid. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in a fight with another ship that's flying around me, I have no faith at all in spatial torpedoes. Yeah, that's another one I like, the fact that they just didn't have it out of the gate, you know, the first episode that aired of TOS, everything worked. You know, they were still yeah. working out some other kinks, but warp worked and, 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 you know, all the weapons worked and it's, it, you know, it couldn't always have been that way. <laughs> so to see some things work really well and other things fail, I think is really yeah. realistic. So then quickly we got photonic torpedoes the photon torpedoes that we're accustomed to in Star Trek. And these went into use in 2153. So it's like right away after a year out in space, the NX-01 is getting the fancy torpedoes that we're accustomed to with the antimatter warheads. Now, they weren't as powerful as what we saw in the future because still, you know, we saw cases where a bird of prey would divert its energy to reinforce its shields mm-hmm. in the place where the NX-1 was trying to attack. And then these photonic torpedoes still couldn't really penetrate those shields. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, they were much better than spatial torpedoes. And th- the question I want to ask you about this is, do you feel like they jumped to photon torpedoes too quickly? in the show yeah you know for me personally i like that idea that they could have struggled a little bit longer and so whether that's the torpedoes whether it's what you're talking about with the transporters where maybe nobody 
nobody, no human goes through that for the first full season. And somewhere in the second season, it's a, it's a big deal that somebody uses it and doesn't die. Mm-hmm. Or maybe one person come through, comes through alive and the other one dies. I mean, whatever that is, where it's just more dramatic. And so, I, yeah, I, I could have seen that held off or I could have seen those fail too. You know, I would have been all right with that as well, where it, you know, the, the, they didn't operate as they expected for a couple episodes and they went through the same problems with those. And then once they yeah. got them working, they were badass. I mean, that'd be great. Then you have your, ter- your torpedo has some character growth, <laughs> not just the ship. <laughs> <laughs> character growth in a torpedo. I like that. Right. Um, you know, if, if this had been Battlestar Galactica, they would have gotten the photon torpedoes and one of them would have exploded inside the ship mm-hmm. and the antimatter would have, have gotten out and there a bunch of people would have died. So, right. yeah, I, you know, it, it's really, really tough because in, at the end of the day, it's a Star Trek series and fans have a certain expectation as to what they're going to see when they're watching a Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. And I think that, especially looking back when we only had four seasons, you know, if we didn't have photon torpedoes until the fourth season, I think that it would have been really hard for fans to wrap their minds around the series as being a Star Trek series. Right. And so, so they kind of had to go that way. But as John Billingsley was saying in that article we were referencing earlier, if they could have carried this stuff through its logical course, it would have made a whole lot more sense for them to to be stuck out there with this technology and, and kind of fret about the fact that they really weren't prepared to defend themselves. And, and people back on Earth would be working feverishly to develop new, better technologies, and then the ship would have to go back and be refitted. Mm-hmm. But I guess that wouldn't make a very interesting TV show, would it? I, I think it would, actually. I think you identified the real problem is the fans would reject it because it's not the Trek that they know. And I think... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and tell people they should like something different or feel differently about it. But but, um, you know, if, if what you want is more of the series you just finished watching, then you're never going to get it no matter what else happens. So and, and, yeah. and to me, even looking at the reason why I wanted to highlight the timeline at the beginning, it's 100 years before Kirk, essentially, but is, is, is taking the helm and we first see him. And if you think about what's changed in our society in the last 20 years and the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the number of changes we've had to just simple technologies we use every day, you almost feel like photon torpedoes should have happened 50 years after Enterprise and they should have gone through three different kinds that you'd never heard of. And yeah. I, it's, that seems more right. real to me. And I don't know as much as people like canon in, in the Trek universe, I don't know if the canon's always realistic. Right? Um, right. As I said, some yeah. of it was, you know, it, it was originally devised as a uh, as a plot device or something, and then it then it, it it was interesting and it stuck around and it became canon. But it may not necessarily be <laughs> the most thought through thing in the world. Right. Well, generally, it's not thought through. Right. Right. Uh, technologies in in canon are. Things are created as the stories go along. They become canon, but there's not necessarily there's there's no great roadmap. Right. It's like this is the development of the torpedo right. that didn't exist, right? right? So then you have to go back and retcon that. And if you think about this, so they get photonic torpedoes in twenty one fifty three. 
I mean, you make a really great point about how much things have changed for us in the last 20 years. If you look at the original series technology and then you look at the next generation technology in terms of engines, shields, weapon systems, mm-hmm. haven't changed. I mean, we're talking about uh, an 80-year period. Mm-hmm. You would expect like this, you could almost not recognize the technology from 80 years ago because technology, you know, every year that goes by, it keeps advancing exponentially right you know we learn more and more and it gets better and better and better faster and faster so to think that they had photon torpedoes in 2153 that are not that much different than what kirk has in the 23rd century mm-hmm. it's like boy you guys you didn't make much progress did you and then you get to the next generation you're like what have you guys been doing for the last 200 years Right. Yeah, exactly. That that's that's how I feel about it. I feel like there's you know, there there was so much room to bring in new stuff, but that you they if the language is different, if it's not photonic, if you call them something else, the fans aren't going to react to it the same way and you're going to lose yeah. you know, your most diehard people. And and that was yeah. the balance the enterprise had to strike and it was basically impossible to do in a prequel. <laughs> like, there was no way that they were going to win yeah. that battle completely. Right. Um, and, and if I can get on a little soapbox for a while, sometimes some of that canon, oh boy, how do I say this without having my, my Twitter explode? Um, some of the things <laughs> that, that were entered into canon at some point are stupid, right? There's something that became canon and we, we fell in love with it in the moment and then 10 years later, you realize, you know, the, the stack of pads that Picard had is stupid, right? <laughs> and so, if, well, so yeah. if you want to stick to canon, now, you know, you have stacks of pads on the Enterprise NX-01, and, and you're, you're really in the, you're in the situation where it's a completely alternate universe instead of some place where we can actually go. And, and you're tying the hands of the writers where they can't change anything. How about instead of calling it stupid, we'll call it quaint. <laughs> Good. Because Good. that's what it, because I mean, at the time that you're doing it, just the fact that there was a flat device mm-hmm. that could display something on the screen seemed revolutionary. You know, we can't really anticipate that we're going to have this other technology. Now, I will say this is where science fiction writers, you know, like Isaac Asimov and people like that were, were better at kind of guessing what kind of technology we might have down the road mm-hmm. than, than television writers. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You can't, and luckily Enterprise didn't try to completely stick to it because you do see, like in the catwalk, you see that Archer can watch water polo on his pad right? and he can read on his pad. Right. I mean, it's more like an iPad. It's multi-purpose. So, I mean, the thing with the pads is it's just like, you put something on a pad and you ask someone, could you please take this down to engineering? It's like, right. you guys have this incredibly powerful computer and you've got 800 display screens in every room on the ship. You could just transmit this information, but right. nope, someone's got to carry that pad <laughs> down there because that's, you know, you need to be able to follow someone right. in a television show. So I think it's the balance too between viewing Star Trek as entertainment and viewing it as the real world. And that's a a tough balance that we all have to do both as fans and, and as creatives. Well, and that's what, you know, I got my hackles up a little bit about photonic torpedoes because you said some people would have been upset if they weren't mentioned. And I feel kind of like, well, get over it. It's, it's okay. It's, 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 you know, it's 104 years in the past, you know, maybe you can say, 
maybe some scientist comes in, he says, I'm working on these new things. They're called photonic torpedoes. In 50 years, we're going to have something pretty amazing, you know, and that's the way you handle it. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I have a better answer. It's going to satisfy everybody. <laughs> and then right after he says that up on the screen, it says, BASF, we don't make the things you use every day. We make the things you use better. Right. And then yes. and the little guy comes in with the lubricant you were talking about before. <laughs> Makes it work. <laughs> right. I, where I was going with that was not so much that people would be upset if they weren't mentioned. I just think that people are accustomed to seeing space battles with photon torpedoes in mm-hmm. Star Trek. And if you if you couldn't have that, it it just wouldn't feel like a Star Trek show. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, we have a couple of other items here before we wrap up. And this one, I love that they have this in the show. This is, we're accustomed to tractor beams, of course, Mm -hmm. you know. Mr. Worf, lock a tractor beam on that ship. Nope. Enterprise, they have magnetic grapplers. They still use magnets? (laughs) They still have magnets and claws. And claws, yeah. I don't know how popular they are in the U.S., but in Japan, the the crane game with the little claw that Mm -hmm. you, you lower it and you try to grab stuff is insanely popular even today. And this is what it reminds me of, but for space. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that I thought I think the grappler is great. And and I think I've never heard this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Gene Roddenberry wasn't thinking the same thing for the original Trek, but it was too expensive. And so he said, well we'll just sort of animate in a beam here and that'll take care yeah. of it. You know, but I, I thought I think it I think it totally makes sense as a as a trans transition point. Oh, it, it definitely makes sense as a transition point. It's very ineffective, though. <laughs> when you get to grab another ship, I will not let go of you. <laughs> well, it seems like they had better aim with that than they did with the spatial torpedoes, though, for some reason. Well, that's because it was attached to the ship by a metal shaft. Right. So it's a little bit easier to aim and control where it's going to go, I guess. I, I, I imagine the, the the gripping of the claw was difficult. Yeah, right? I can never get the teddy bear. So I don't know how they were no. going to get the, like the Zindi ship when they grabbed that. That seems like a one in a million shot to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting. Yeah, it just comes out. It did use a magnet, a magnetic lock to hold on to something after it had grabbed it. Uh, the NX-01 had two of these grapplers. The other thing that I found interesting... Oh, this goes back to transporters. I was going to mention this when we were talking about transporters. When Voyager got to the Delta Quadrant, they discovered that there's no transporter technology in the Delta Quadrant. At least originally, everyone was like, wow, what is this magical technology that you have? And likewise, we see the Vidians using grappler technology in the Delta Quadrant. So as opposed to tractor beams, they actually use grapplers in the 24th century. You know, if I was an engineer, that would just totally make sense to me. I'm just going to have a cable. It's going to attach to something. I I, I can trust it. <laughs> it takes less energy. It all seems to make sense. Couldn't you see, like, if, if, if you had to use grapplers, one of your military strategies would be to send out groups of four ships and you would surround an enemy ship from four corners. You would all shoot the grapplers, and then you would all fly away in opposite directions to try to rip the ship apart. Right? Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. I also, well, I also think that um, you, you know, it you having just one though is the only thing that makes sense to me. 
because the odds of missing with that first one, and then you got to reel it back in and shoot it again. Yeah. You know, there should have been three or four, but, you know. Well, the Enterprise did have two, so at least if they missed with the first one, they could use the other one while they wind the first one back in and right. try again. Yeah, exactly. But well, yeah, you should have a, a bunch of them, right? Yeah, and they should be all over the place. I mean, it seems like that's how they do any number of things uh, to me, but, yeah. you know. Carrying cargo around, like mm-hmm. if it won't fit in the ship, you get just like giant <laughs> crates underneath the ship. Right. You've got like six of these grapplers holding it up as you fly around. Yeah, I don't know how that would work at warp, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Another interesting thing that they had as prequel technology was polarized hull plating. Right. And this is what they used before they had the fancy shield technology that we're used to in the 24th century. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I never totally got this. I I poked around a little bit online today to try and learn more about it. And it just seems like your ship would blow up. (laughs) I mean, it just seems like (laughs) it's not enough to really protect you. Yeah. I think it's just a case where, of course, every ship has hull plating. So you polarize it and it sort of deflects things that are coming towards you. And to me, it's more like a, a dampening effect where, like, if someone shoots a photon torpedo at you, this is not going to protect you. Right. Um, now, I guess it, it, it does in, in Enterprise in space battles because you can't have the ship blowing up every time some sort of object hits the hull. But in reality, it doesn't sound like it would be very protective. Although it... It reminds me a bit of what they did on Deep Space Nine, though, with the Defiant, with the ablative mm-hmm. armor, you know, which did allow the ship to take more punishment uh, with protection that was something other than the energy shielding. Yeah, I thought I thought that made a lot of sense. It's just I think that you know there was always there's this sci-fi thing, and it used to be in a bunch of cartoons. I remember they were always. They always had to reverse the polarity. Like, there's a problem. Oh, I know. We'll fix it. We'll reverse the polarity. And it just felt like, okay, so we're <laughs> right. like, the electrons are going to run the other way. And now, <laughs> right? And now our ship is safe. So it always seemed that's the one that um, I, I, I like the fact that they took every single technology and they tried to think, okay, what would have existed before that? But I also feel like the ship would have yeah. made it through one battle with this, like one shot. And it seems like you'd be gone. It, it seems to me like, the energy shielding technology would be something that they would have developed by now with, with everything else that they that they have, all the technologies that the humans had developed and then Starfleet is implementing on their ships. Yeah, it seemed like they would have that because this hull plating, polarized hull plating, apparently goes back. It was the ECS Horizon was the first ship, and that's 2102. Mm. So that's already half a century before the launch of the NX-01. You would think that within half a century, they would have advanced the technology beyond this. Well, yeah, and you you know, you know, mentioned the Defiant. Even just having more armor would kind of make more sense to me. Or even, I mean, this sounds really silly, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but what if, you know, all the plates just somehow could be pushed up and they're all foot, there was a little gap. There was a foot of armor. It was a way, <laughs> I was right? just thinking and about that. So you that. had this little cushion before it actually hit the, the you know, the, the exterior of the ship. Well, I was just thinking of that, and I was also thinking how in the 24th century, you'll have episodes where the shields are failing and they're near mm-hmm. a star and the radiation is going to make everybody sick. And I'm thinking, you know, like, how do you block harmful radiation from a mm-hmm. star? One way is to put a lot of water 
between your people and mm-hmm. space, right? You need some sort of buffer. And you you just mentioned like having a gap there. And I'm thinking, yeah, and fill that gap with water. So the whole ship is surrounded by this layer of of water to to protect everybody. Yeah, yeah. and that could, could be cetacean that. ops also. Yeah, they get the right. Exactly. There. That's where the dolphins. Yeah, I think um, the commander Flipper's predecessor <laughs> would be in there. Right. <laughs> I think uh, that that the, the um, yeah, it just it seems like that some sort of armor would make more sense at this stage to have and so whether that's whether it's that water i mean all those ships what they did they had double hold ships that was i mean the titanic sank but it was a yeah. double hold ship and it was a big deal and it seems like that's that would make more sense at this point well last thing we'll talk about today and this is it's a prequel technology but it's something that continued to be used all the way through the end of voyager and that's the universal translator But the catch is that in Enterprise, the Universal Translator had just been invented in 2151. It was a completely experimental technology on the ship. And Hoshi herself turns out to be one of the key developers of the Universal Translator, or the UT, as it's called, because she's the one who really developed the linguistic database for it and and. I guess in our own terms, think of it as the software that it runs mm-hmm. on. And eventually they make it smaller and smaller and smaller. But at this point, it's something, you know, you see her walking around with things and punching things mm-hmm. in as they board Klingon ships. Yeah. What do you think about the Universal Translator in general and how it's portrayed on Enterprise? Yeah, I actually think this is, you know, I, I've been sort of repeating myself, which is I like the the struggle and the growth that that they show in enterprise. And this is probably the best example of um, here, here is something that they found a shortcut for. And so it made all the stories really convenient, but this is actually to me better storytelling because it makes sense in universe. It, it gives the character something real to struggle against that, that makes sense in context. Um, you know, so I think for it works in a number of different ways for me, and then it it really puts you in the shoes of those characters, especially when they would go and have long scenes where you couldn't understand what the aliens were saying. Um, so I, I really yeah. like it in that, and you know, it's 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 sort of been a must-have for some of the other series to have a universal translator so everyone can understand what everyone's saying because English is not probably going to be the language everyone speaks. <laughs> we all know this. Um, right. And so it's yeah. it's nice to see somebody actually dealing with that a little bit. Yeah. I thought Enterprise handled the Universal Translator pretty well. I thought they found a good balance there of having it work enough that the storytelling didn't completely bog mm-hmm. down, but making it clear that, you know, it's not magic mm-hmm. that it you you someone actually has to figure out how to make this work and has to communicate. So, and I've talked extensively about the the UT on past shows, especially on our Hoshi character discussion show. So I, I won't uh, re I won't repeat myself too much here. But the technology itself is something that I don't. Star Trek needs it. I don't see it as ever being something that we have in the way that it works on Star Trek. I think that all you need to do today is to look at Google Translate and how absolutely horrendous it is with languages that are not closely related to each other to know that this is a really, really difficult thing to do. And these are languages that we know 
You know, Google can hire people who are native speakers of these languages that are trained linguists and and programmers, and they still can't get a decent translation between English and Japanese or English and Russian, for example. You know, two things. That, these are languages that I speak, and so if I go and I look at the results, it's like, okay, I can understand what it's saying because I already know both mm -hmm. sides of the language. But if you didn't, you would read it and you're like, okay, well, I kind of know what you're talking about, but there could be a lot of confusion there. And so I think eventually we'll work this out. And eventually with languages that we know, all of the details of the language, we can program devices that will work this way. So I do think we'll get there. And so in the Star Trek context, uh, Federation Standard, English, and Klingon, Vulcan, Romulan, these languages, yes, I think that they can create a device and they can probably even fit it into a communicator pin or however they're going to do it. And it'll work just fine. But, you know, you're not going to encounter the Axanar or the Zerillians and just start conversing with them about your engineering problems. I cannot see that as ever happening. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I actually think one, one of one of the things I've always struggled a little bit with on on Trek shows, I mean, I love all of them, but is is the fact that the all the aliens are just a little too human. And there, there's this, there's mm -hmm. a, you know, they, they've tried to address it a couple of times, but the number of com commonalities are just too high. And the biggest and simplest one that that no no two, you know, I don't care if if we all have the same genetics, no two races should really share is language. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, they should be so radically different that it's impossible to understand each other. You know, because yeah. one one group might talk, might think completely in pictures. I mean, forget talking. They could think in a completely different way that doesn't even translate into something we would understand as language. Oh, yeah. And so that, that's always been hard for me. Well, yeah. And to Enterprise's credit, they did that mm -hmm. with the Zindi insectoids. Right. And they even made it so that on the Zindi homeworld, the language could not be spoken. Right. Because they couldn't, you know, like they can understand it. The the other uh, Zindi races could understand it, but they can't speak it. Right. Um, so, so they kind of went there, but yeah, but yeah, thought process, I mean, would be completely, totally different. I think Vuxola did that really well with the plastic wrap creature mm -hmm. and the way that they were finally able to communicate there. That was just a completely alien concept. Right. And they were able to communicate enough to figure out what to do, but they're not going to sit down and talk about philosophy with that yeah, plastic and, wrap. Yeah. Creature. And that's my enterprise soapbox again, that people complain about a lot of things on there and there's so many things they did better than some of the other series. And you've, you hit the mm -hmm. nail on the head. You know, I, I was when I was making that complaint. You know, it's true of Enterprise, but it's more true of every other series before this one. And so, yeah. um, I, I liked that 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 they at least tucked that in there a few times. Most definitely. All right. Well, this has been an interesting discussion. We've covered, I'm not sure if we hit every single prequel technology, but I think we certainly covered enough of them. We've been talking for an hour about technology here, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Pitching a piece of the action movie. I think we can definitely might, say that the they might go that the that, Transformers though. planet doesn't work. They might go for that. Would you go for that, Drew? I mean, personally, I would shy away from it because then you'd be... Or would you be, shy uh, away it from would be, it? You're a bad person. <laughs> 
<laughs> Earl Grey. William T. Riker. Imagine now if he'd come back with a goatee or mutton chops. We could have been a very different Riker. Hipster Riker. Number one, are you wearing glasses? <laughs> no, it's Jordy's visor. I just... <laughs> I'm reading a pad that you've never heard of before. The Ready Room. Inside a lot time with Mark Fishman. But something else that you'll find out in book two is that they almost didn't have Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock for season two of Star Trek. Uh, his agent wanted more money for Leonard and for good reason because when he signed on to do the series he was supposed to be uh, a supporting actor and yet he was getting more fan mail than even William Shatner who was the star of the show yet uh, only a fraction of the money the orb move along home as a TOS episode Cisco comparing first contact to dating girls felt like something that Kirk would do as well, you know, t- teaching Charlie Evans about girls in yeah. Charlie X, something like that. To the journey! Voyager on Blu-ray. I know that there's been some outtakes done because you can find clips of them on YouTube, mm-hmm. but there's got to be more, and I want to see them all. Warp 5. Andorians on Enterprise. And so they took this idea where they had antenna and they took this idea where they were blue and from someplace cold, or I don't even know if they were someplace cold when they were on the, the TOS. And they, they they just made everything better. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Steven Bear recap. I think when you look at the, the work that was done on, on Deep Space Nine, what becomes apparent is a group of people who do not feel like they need to do what the original series did in order to accomplish what the original series accomplished. Melodic tricks. Apparently, at one point, Patrick Stewart felt he might be able to actually play on screen himself, although he was delicately pointed out to him by Bryce Martin that he wasn't up to that standard quite yet. Literary tricks. Peaceable Kingdoms with Peyton Ward. I don't really remember why I was the one chosen to back cleanup, other than the fact that I think Margaret, our editor, wanted Picard and the Enterprise E to factor into the final, uh, the final installment, and she had already tapped me to write that story. Matter stream. Star Trek Axelar with Alec Peters and Richard Hatch. If you've ever experienced war or any kind of um, conflict, where Everything is life and death. There's a certain kind of um, resolve, truth, experience that you come to that um, I don't think too many people can understand or ever really, really um, empathize with. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows and we have them for you on iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So find your favorite show and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. All right, Tyler, since our last show, we received a review in iTunes, and this is from WSJ. I-N-A-M-E-S. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's W-S... 
Jai Names, something like that. But but they wrote, Trekka Film takes a swing at Enterprise. They gave us five stars and said, like all the Trekka Film shows, the show is well-produced and good listening. As with their other series-based shows, each program focuses on a broad topic, such as a character, a season arc, or a theme, rather than being an episode review. I came into this show as I was just starting to watch Enterprise and got a bit lost from time to time. But I am now seeing things that I heard about and plan to go back and re-listen to some of the podcasts to see what they said. That should be endorsement enough. So thanks so much for that review. And yeah, that's the thing about our shows. And, and they are designed that way on purpose, to be broad discussion shows. And we we assume that you have seen the series. Because there are plenty of other shows out there that do week-by-week episode reviews, and they just go straight through the series. And we didn't want to just duplicate what everyone else is doing. So we wanted to offer something different to the Star Trek community. And our approach with all of our series shows was to to take the broad look and kind of really get down into the minutia of the series. So hopefully everyone enjoys that approach. And if you'd like to leave a review for us on iTunes as well, we'd love to hear from you. It does help people find the show in iTunes. Enterprise is not the easiest topic to find in the thousands and thousands of podcasts that are available there. It only takes about a minute to write up a review, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please drop by there if you have a chance. Also, if you'd like to share your thoughts on prequel technology, anything that Tyler and I talked about today, you can do that by going to our website at trek.afilm contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail from the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.afilm forums to talk to us and other listeners about Enterprise, about Star Trek, any part of Star Trek that you want to discuss. There's always something going on over there. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And on Twitter, you'll find us tweeting away all the time about Star Trek under username trekfm. Now, Tyler, how long have you been on Twitter? A week, two weeks now? How's that going for you? <laughs> Coming up on a month, it's it's fun. A month, okay. Um, it's, it's a little customized news feed for me, which, uh, you know, I, I like it now. Good. All right. I saw you drumming up some conversation about Star Trek on there over the past few days. So if people want to talk to you about Star Trek and share their thoughts with you about maybe they have an Enterprise soapbox, maybe you guys can get up on that together. What's the (laughs) username over there? You can get a hold of me at Flintastic. That's F-L-Y-N-T-T-A-S-T-I-C. Excellent. And you also joined us on the Ready Room again recently where we talked about Remember Me. And um, so people can find you over there as well. And if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my own personal website at cbrianjones.com. Elsewhere on the network, besides this show, you can find me with Matthew Rushing on The Orb, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine, the way we talk about Enterprise here. Matthew and I also do Literary Treks together, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. And then you'll find me on The Ready Room, which I just mentioned, with hosts from all over the network and special guests, where we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action series. And there we do take an episode and use that as the basis for discussion. We rotate from TOS through Enterprise and back around. So every week it's a different series 
from the world of Star Trek. And then lastly, I have my own interview show, Matterstream, where I talk to scientists and writers and actors and directors and all sorts of creative people about topics that are loosely related to Star Trek or inspired by Star Trek. So check that show out as well if you want a little bit of a different twist on the Star Trek franchise. Before we let you go, we'd also like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show. That's Audible.com. Audible makes it possible for us to bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you every week. They're the best place on the internet you're going to find for audiobooks. The premier source, they have over 150,000 titles, and they're putting hundreds of new titles up every week. They have classics, current bestsellers, lots of Star Trek books. And best of all, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. So if you go over to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up, you'll be able to get that free audiobook. You'll be able to, you know, try out Audible, see everything they have to offer. If you decide at the end of that that you don't want to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that free audiobook. So go give it a try today. It does help us keep the shows coming to you. I promise you're going to love it. I've been using Audible for 14 years. I think that says something about what they've got going on over there. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And we thank you for supporting Audible. We'd also like to invite you to go over and check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. If you like the jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on the show, you're going to love Andrew's album. He's got that plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. And you can pick that up in iTunes or on Amazon, wherever you get your albums. Really great stuff by Andrew there, so go check that out. And lastly, one more thing. If you'd like to get some aliens, now we don't have the plastic wrap alien from Voxala, but uh, we do have other aliens from Star Trek as original illustrations. These are done by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And we have them as badges and as art prints. And you can choose which you want in which format. We have different contribution levels for you to choose from as well. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring Warp 5 to you each week. And you'll find these at trek.fm slash donate. All right, Tyler. It was good having you on the show again. Thanks for recommending this topic. I really enjoyed talking about it. And I hope you enjoyed sharing your thoughts on technology with me as well. Yeah, thanks for having me back. This is always a lot of fun. Good. Well, we'll have you back again soon to talk about another topic. And so until then, everyone, please join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. Have fun out there, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>